Hi all, thanks for joining Windchill Time. This is Day and Ari, and this is going to be a really special episode because we have two awesome guests, Jonathan and the boy, in this episode. Say hi, Ari. Hi, y'all. <laughs> all right. Hey, how's uh, it going? <laughs> Glad to awesome. be here. Awesome. Thanks for letting me bring my son. Yeah, yeah. The hi. boy. Hey, man. <laughs> So we were warming up earlier and we had a meal. Mm-hmm. So we were able Delicious. to execute on Aries' uh, amazing culinary skills. And one of the early visions that we had for the podcast, which was to feed people. And then uh, that would make it so that they wouldn't be hangry during the show. Oh, it's very important. <laughs> I'm not hangry. And we also wanted to share Korean food because most people, when they think of uh, Korean food, they only think of bulgogi or firetop uh, grill. There's a lot of other parts of Korean food, and uh, we want to share that because, you know, pho exactly. is really, you know, everywhere. Yeah. <coughs> Felt like uh, there's a certain one or two Korean dishes that could have the same u- ubiquity as pho, mm-hmm. you know. So anyway, so we'll do the Botfolio Bitcoin quote, mm-hmm. and then we'll uh, uh, go ahead and roll Dom right now. If, unless there's anything else you want to declare in the intro here? No, I think uh, yeah. it's a great time to be alive. And <laughs> it's a great time to be alive. <laughs> really? And uh, and that's a great thing to declare, by the way. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a great thing to be alive. <laughs> great time and to um, despite, you know, if we tune out what's going out in the media and we stop and look at our neighbors and talk, I think there's a lot that we can learn from each other. And so if we can, you know, take the time to get to know our friends and neighbors more than, you know, their titles or jobs that they do, um, if cool. you could uh, give a po- couple of bullet points on Jonathan's bio while I kind of give an overview. So in this episode, we're going to give a very holistic view of a local Seattle celebrity who <laughs> has achieved a lot. And so we're, what we're trying to do is give a very holistic, very um, complete, more complete view, I think, of uh, people who might be viewed <coughs> as, you know, one dimensional. Right. You know, and, and by others. So. Right. So uh, I'll give you my perspective of what I know of Jonathan. So his name is Jonathan Spasato. I read about him in GeekWire, which is why I was really attracted to him. And I noticed that he was Asian. And I don't know if you remember when one of our first meetings, I said, oh, do you do you feel like you're Asian? Does that play a role in who you are? And you were like, not really. I remember that question. <laughs> and you were yeah. like, you looked at me kind of funny. You were like, uh, yeah, no one's ever asked me that before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and you gave me some really good advice at that first meeting. And I think most people know Jonathan Sposato as an angel investor. They know him as a, a book author of a book called Better Together. He speaks a lot we'll of diversity and inclusion. Yep. Um, he's also known as the uh, angel investor who will only invest in women or women-founded companies, which was a really big thing to declare uh, several years ago. And so he was a pioneer on that front. Um, he's also known as the uh, only person to have exited two companies to Google. And so uh, people are like, wow, he's amazing. <laughs> and to me, I said, oh, he must have a lot of good product strategy. And, uh, or, or more lucky than good. <laughs> more lucky than good, for sure. And then uh, 
just gives really, really good advice. I've always enjoyed every interaction that we've had. And so look up All to right. him a lot. Well, I appreciate that. I, I definitely get more out of my interactions with the two of you than uh, vice versa, I, I suspect. And so I'm uh, <laughs> really just honored to be here. And, you know, I have my motives for being here, too. I mean, my hidden secret, uh, the secret squirrel agenda. Everybody's got a whiff them. What's is, in it for me? Is, is yeah. I, I, I get, I, I'm a little more, I get to be a little bit more in touch with my forgotten or underserved uh, Korean side of my heritage. You know, most people don't know that I'm half Korean and uh, I was born to a single mom who is, or still is, who was and still is a Chinese. And so the Korean side, I don't, I don't feel like that I'm, I'm as uh, knowledgeable about as I, as I should be. And at the age of 52, I'm always delighted to, to have, you know, really great Korean food. And so, (laughs) so thank you. Never, uh, yeah, really appreciate you coming in. Never too late, ever, ever in a person's life to have uh, self-awareness and self-actualization. Yeah. Here, here. All right, so we'll go ahead and roll Dom's uh, introductory disclosures, disclaimers, and then we'll head into the rest of the segment. Awesome. Hi, y'all. This is Dom from CoinMe, or you might know me from The Blockchain Minute, your daily show for the most important story on the blockchain. None of the statements or opinions expressed in this podcast by the guests or its host is to be taken as financial advice or a solicitation of any kind to participate in a conservative or risky or speculative financial instrument that may or may not require accredited investor status as defined by either the Security and Exchange Commission of the United States of America or independent thought and rational thinking from the laws of humanity. By listening to this podcast, you acknowledge that the hosts, Arian Day, and their guests are not financial advisors of any kind, but only humans and not sentient intergalactic alien life forms. All statements made in this podcast by any living or dead or unborn or zombie or robotic entity in the past, present, or future of the space-time continuum of this known universe are purely ironic or coincidental thoughts and opinions. Moments of sarcasm, sadness, education, glee, entertainment, or any other emotion that may be found in this podcast are fully your responsibility and reaction that may or may not be intended for the listener in any way, shape, or form. Mature adult discretion is strongly advised. Thank you for listening. All right. Welcome back. Thank you again to Dom at CoinMe for reading the disclosures, disclaimers. That's a little bit of uh, uh, the boy. That was a little bit of radio magic there. Did you notice that? Did you notice what we did? (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, awesome. So we had a lot of warm-up and talking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Blockfolio app. Where are we at, Ari? All right. So it is August 27th around 1.15 p.m. And via Blockfolio, the price of Bitcoin is currently $10,154. And they will proceed with Satoshi math. How do you get so the Satoshis? putting that $10,154 into eight decimal places, you divide one fiat dollar by 0.00010154. And then you get 9,848 Satoshis that you can purchase. Uh, so a fraction of a Bitcoin with one US dollar. What wow. do you think about that, Ari? My eyes are getting crossed. <laughs> <laughs> the Satoshi math is really difficult. I'm getting better at it. That's one of the most yeah. challenging parts about Bitcoin is all the math. I mean, eight decimal places is a phenomenally s- small fraction of you know one. And so I think that's one of the parts that really intimidates people about 
Bitcoin is that you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy fractions of a Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So we were talking earlier, Jonathan. Um, yeah. So you definitely know about Bitcoin. Yes. When did you first hear about it, and what, what's your kind of your background story on your awareness well, of it? Yeah, so not very exciting in this case. Um, I first heard about it a few years ago when when really sort of evolved and ahead it occurred. Folks like yourselves were were involved in it, and I have some other friends who've invested in it. I used to actually own a bar on Fourth Avenue oh, yeah. called the Spitfire, and I still own the building that it's in right now. It's where Pink Toe. Oh is, yeah, I remember restaurant. that place. Yeah. yeah, and and somebody, I think it was Nick. Hughes, oh. who approached me and said, "Hey, we're I'm involved with this project that's basically a Bitcoin um, um, ATM machine. We'd love to try. You're mm. the perfect guy, Jonathan. You're you're a tech guy. Yeah, you like new ideas, uh, and you own a bar. So if we install <laughs> one at the Spitfire. I'm like, yeah, sure, let's try it. And so it it, oh, it wow. I think did pretty well. Um, uh, I I don't know if it's I don't think it's still there. Okay, I haven't been in on the premises for a while. But but that was I think amongst the earliest uh, part of my awareness. I'm also friends with uh, Charles Fitzgerald, uh, who was also an early early Bitcoin investor. Uh, and then now having said all of that, I am woefully unaware of. Bitcoin because um, uh, what well, the way I see it is is that there are so many things that I am not able to invest in and they are things that I understand pretty well uh, whereas Bitcoin is, is is a little bit more still on the periphery for me do I have FOMO about it absolutely <laughs> uh, okay so then it's been a f more than a few like a handful of years then I mean yeah. since Bitfire because that was that was a while ago okay. yeah it was a while ago we had a great maybe I think eight year run. And frankly, the Spitfire was, it was so much fun. I mean, I love the, the, the good old days of when uh, the Spitfire was pretty new and GeekWire was pretty new. And so we, there was a lot of synergy. We would host a lot of oh, game yeah. nights, you know, GeekWire game nights at the That's Spitfire. Right. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Uh, um, so, so or, or we might, you know, I don't know, get get our friend Rich Barton to be like a, oh, a, yeah. a, a, a sort of a speaker and we would set up the, the Spitfire in the back room to to uh, like an auditorium and people would hear mm -hmm. him speak and John Cook would interview him. And so that was really, uh, those days were really fun. And I frankly kind of miss those days of when things were simpler. You know, then when your companies get bigger and, you know, uh, you know, PicMonkey's got about a hundred employees and wow. you post private equity deal <laughs> and you have other shareholders from the Bay Area. You get more abstracted from the the day-to-day, -day, uh, arguably the fun stuff. And so, so uh, I miss those days, but, but yeah, the Spitfire was uh, a really great, um, uh, eight years or so. Mm, that's a nice run. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I totally forgot about yeah. that. You know, low margin business, you know, the bar and restaurant business as probably most people know. So maybe, uh, maybe you could have used a little help from the, um, uh, uh, bar makeover. What's that uh, show oh, that you've been rescue. watching? Bar rescue. Bar rescue. <laughs> have you heard Let's of this see. show, yeah. Jonathan? Yeah, I have not heard of it. Yeah, what? What? What is it on? Like uh, HGTV or something? It's on yeah. one of those channels. And uh, yeah. while um, the first couple months of the Quinoa's life, mm -hmm. and I'm basically feeding the baby, and so uh, I would watch Bar Rescue on mm -hmm. TV, and it's this guy named John Taffer, mm. and you call him in, and he's like, this bar is doing terrible, and this is mm -hmm, why, because mm -hmm. you know, you're not counting your liquor, and yeah, yeah, you don't yeah. have a very good menu, and the theme's yeah. not good, yeah, and your right. service is terrible. <laughs> is that funny? <laughs> What's so funny? What's so funny? about something. <laughs> yeah, that's great. No, that means you're, you're, you're enjoying... The, so they talk about yeah. money very directly in that yeah. show, very though. Directly. Very yeah. directly. Yeah. I mean, they, they, he just says... 
your margins are terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like this is costing you this much, that yeah. much. You know, you gave away just, five thousand dollars yeah. of liquid free because you're over pouring. Yeah, 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 yeah. That all sounds familiar. You know, those are similar <laughs> issues that we had. And and by the way, not to uh, disparage you know any of the daytime managers or general managers, evening managers, bartenders that we had. They were just some some of the most wonderful people, and I'm still friends with with many of them. Um, I felt that it was really important for me to remain in touch. You know, this was after, you know, I did the Spitfire with my with my business partner, Jerry Everard. This was well after a long career at Microsoft and tech. And I think this was even after I started the Spitfire during the second company that I sold to Google, uh, picnic.com. And it was just a great counterbalance to like, I I really felt like I was in a bubble uh, interacting with Mm. just you know, people in the tech industry. And it was really important for me to, to cross pollinate with an entirely different section of, 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 of our community. Um, you know, young people who were, you know, bartenders and, and mm-hmm. wait staff and, and, um, you know, cooks and things like that. So I really enjoyed that experience and, and we could have kept it going, but as it turns out, the math was better if I just remained on the landlord side. <laughs> and so I guess a little less headache. Uh, but yeah. people really worked hard and did a great job. Um, but yeah, with with restaurants and bars, you have problems such as um, overpouring. Uh, then your that eats into your cost of goods right. um, or things that you can't figure out about the traffic. You you think like, oh, well, you know, PopCap just uh, expanded and they're, you know, down the block. So that means maybe there's more lunch traffic. Well, then it doesn't happen. Oh, well, maybe they're going in a different direction or heading more <laughs> towards downtown, uh, more north uh, to where we were. That kind of reminds me of a joke. Um, yeah. How do you make a small fortune out of a restaurant and bar business? Yeah, right. First, you start with a large fortune. Uh-huh. And yeah, then right. you work really, really hard. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have your small fortune. That's right. That's right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. That, the bars and wineries, there's that similar joke. You know, how do you make a million dollars in the wine business? Right. Well, you take 10 million. 10, yeah. And then you buy a winery <laughs> no. uh, and you're left with one. So it's all these, uh, you know, ultra attractive, sexy businesses that, uh, you know, people want to do. And then they find out the brutal realities of managing staff and customers and marketing and, you know, whole menagerie of variables. High turnover, too. Service industry is high turnover. So like. I, I would actually segue to, you know, because we, we are um, um, also talking about like tech companies and things like that. I, I actually think running a, a restaurant or a bar being in the service industry in general is incredible. It's like playing with a medicine ball as it relates to a tech company. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I, I, there's sort of like a before uh, bar experience Jonathan and a post bar experience <laughs> Jonathan. Post bar experience Jonathan would be the person, the operator, CEO who whines a lot less about staff turnover and drama between mm. staff members and you know that, that kind of stuff and customer complaints not that i'm inured to those things not that i ignore those things but you you don't you're not just as you're not as burdened by it sure because yeah. you just realize actually that's like a fact of life if you're yeah. going to own any kind of business where there are people involved uh there's a there's a certain amount of stuff that you're just gonna have to deal with on a day-to-day basis yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think uh it's taken me a while to really understand that uh when you hire talent into a company tech or you know um, restaurant bar whatever it is you're not hiring just the talent that they have at the company you're actually hiring the entire mm-hmm. person yeah you know so that it comes with all their baggage yeah. 
good, bad, mm-hmm. everything, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. home life, all that stuff. Right. It, it all comes wholesale. Right. <laughs> do, you, do you remember the Spitfire? Do you remember that? I don't think, I mean, obviously you couldn't go in there because you weren't 21. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember you talking about it, but that's okay. that's it. Yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was a really nice time. I mean, for, for the few years that was um, before we had kids, it was just a neat place to meet meet up with friends for dinner and i thought we're, our dinners were great um and, mm-hmm. uh, so hey, random fact you know we took um we had the uh, b- uh bringing baby home class over in issaquah mm-hmm. one of the guys that sat in front of us was jerry oh really yeah cool. what yeah. he told us <laughs> he, um he looked up gift starter and he mm-hmm. said oh it looks like one of your investors is jonathan yeah yeah he that's said, right i have a business with him i was like what business he said the spitfire yeah that's great yeah. Uh, how long ago was this Oh, this was at least three years ago. Yeah, cool. This was their first kid. Yeah. Three and three quarters years yeah. ago, probably. Yeah. No, Jerry. Yeah. Jerry, if you're out there listening, uh, <laughs> say hi. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, Jerry's a great guy. He and and again, it's you know he's not a tech person. He's a, a real estate attorney by trade, but oh. it's been really great to uh, know him and and to do business with him. And and we we have a number of things happening. Um, just in addition to the Spitfire, there's been some other real estate things that we've done, and, and he's awesome. a really sure. awesome, just like you guys. He's very much a polymath, has many different skills, and yeah, super cool guy. So you mentioned something, a uh, company that's very, very prominent mm-hmm. in the Pacific Northwest uh-huh. a second ago, Microsoft. And uh-huh. so may, maybe we can segue into uh, your experiences at Microsoft then, and then who was in charge, yeah, and then how many years you were there, yeah. and then contrasting that with what you've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially as the chair of GeekWire mm-hmm. and how they've literally transformed themselves yeah. into, you know, half of the cloud services market, yeah. you know, with Azure and all yeah. that. Yeah, you got it. I mean, certainly I, I don't want to uh, posit that I'm uh, some uh, gigantic authority on Microsoft, but but I, I, I will speak, uh, especially did have either of you work there? Yeah, that's right. I, I saw you thought one of you did. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, we scoop up all the good Cornell grads. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I was there from 92 to 2004, so 12 years, oh, wow, which was that's way... that's really key time frame. It was a key time frame. Yeah. And so in retrospect... Windows 95, there was a just anniversary to just Exactly. I know there was, a, there was some fun back and forth with uh, Brad Silverberg on, on, oh, on social media about that, uh, how he was reminiscing about that, and uh, we were all kind of joining in. Yeah, so in 92... I went there because uh, back then uh, I, I basically snuck in. You didn't have to have a PhD to work in research. So I started in research Whoa. when, uh, you know, I fooled them into thinking I was a smart guy. And, <laughs> and then they figured out I wasn't that smart. So I decided, oh, I should go work in the consumer division where you actually, you know, uh, ship a lot of uh, uh, user-facing products. I would say that, that that you could divide Microsoft into four phases. Uh, and this is just my four phases, not anybody else's. And Ari, it'd be really interesting to hear what you have to say about whether you think that that uh, jives with what you experienced. So from around late 80s to the mid 90s, so when I started there, right, um, it was an incredibly heady time. It was, you literally felt like, whether we deserved it or not, that this was the best company in the world. Wow. That that, yeah. that you would sit there and go, we are... <laughs> it's there's so much winning you're gonna wish that there wasn't any winning <laughs> you're gonna beg me to not win anymore it was like that it felt like we were so we became kind of arrogant quite frankly but it oh, yeah. was um uh it, it, it we were doing so well in all of the businesses that we uh operated in and even some of the businesses that we struggled in um there was always this confidence uh uh that that you know what 
we may not get it right on version one or version two, but we'll always get it right in later versions, mm -hmm. three or four. Mm -hmm. It's always been this Microsoft culture. So in a way, that's good. Those of us who kind of learn that we, we give ourselves as entrepreneurs, as business people to like not be so uppity about getting it right the first time mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and so 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 that was a really great time then i would say and and, and along with that time there was a lot of figuring out of new <clears throat> businesses hey CD-ROMs, multimedia, what's mm -hmm. that about? Oh, let's do a CD-ROM about baseball. Let's do a CD-ROM about dogs. Let's do a Encarta, which is like this encyclopedia. Oh, yeah. Let's do a that. bunch of kids, oh, yeah. kids' products, kids and games products. And that was the group that in the consumer division I went to. Um, and, and then later on, it, 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 we, it, you know, Xbox and all that good stuff. So that was the first phase. And, and, and one last thing I'll say about the first phase was that, it, was that it really felt like a meritocracy. You can talk, mm -hmm. you can write, Bill G, Bill Gates, we call it, we still a lot of us call him Bill G. Mm -hmm. You can write him an email and he will answer it. Mm. He may actually write you a question directly in email and say like, hey, I'm curious to know how your project is going. Maybe you can show me a demo. When you had product reviews with wow. Bill, which was at least every six months, you would talk to him and interact with him directly. And it was an amazing time for me as a young person. Uh, I, I got sort of drafted into service, so to speak, to serve the company in a little bit different way, which was that I think, to their credit, some of the senior members at a company like Bill and others uh, realized that they were not always um, uh, really up for being like a public spokesperson for the company when it comes to mm. conferences and developers uh, uh, conferences and things like that. And so, so there was a small group of us younger folks who would be on stage with, with the execs, with, with Bill Gates, and do demos on stage with him and be sort of the mouthpiece and the hands you know, to really like wow the audience of 6,000 developers while Bill is on stage kind of taking it easy and saying, uh, well, not taking it easy. I didn't care very much of what was going on, but he would just sort of, he didn't have to learn to script as much and, and, and right. the onus was more on us to go through the product and to click through things. So that was incredible preparation for me in terms of public speaking, uh, getting over my own fears, uh, speaking in front of thousands of people while the chairman and CEO of the company is like yeah. right next to you. Right? So, so yeah. there was pressure and you learned to be okay with that. Yeah. So that was the first phase. The second phase was where I think we got really big and bloated and and we got promoted very quickly from being line level product people to being managers and directors and product unit managers and general managers and eventually VPs. And not a lot of us were qualified to be leaders. Mm. I think that the net result of that was that there was a lot of heartache and churn and moving around and finding the right place. And I think that at some point to Steve Ballmer's credit, that as we went into phase three, somewhere between, I would say that phase two and phase three are demarcated by a fall in the stock price or a flattening in the stock price. Mm. So maybe around the late 90s, um, was it was it 2001 that, that, that we had that crash? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. So the stock, oh, yeah. I think, was, um, I remember it distinctly. It was 120-something. <laughs> I was at the Tokyo Game Show in Japan wow. having dinner with my really great boss, my manager, um, Stuart Mulder. If he's out there, I say hi. <laughs> yeah, and he's out there doing cool things, uh, uh, running game companies now, I think. We were in Tokyo having dinner, and he's checking the stock price, much like how you just stocked uh, <laughs> the, the Bitcoin price. He's going, uh, 
the stock just dropped from 120 to 83. Uh, and I'm kind of right, like, right, right. Nah, mm. yeah, I don't know what's going on. You know, you couldn't really do much about it. I wasn't going to call my broker from, t- you know, he wasn't, he was probably um, not, not, not during business hours. But anyway, eventually it went down to like 26. Yeah. 120 yeah. something. The trough of the post.com yeah. and telecom yeah. bubble too. Right. Yeah. That's right. And so I would say phase three from that point forward were the bomber years. Um, and, and then that was when I think whether Steve Bomber deserved it or not, that he, 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 that was the period where the stock was just flat Mm -hmm. and, and I had already left. That's when I joined. joined. (laughs) Well, so, and that was maybe your part of this particular pattern. I had never had so many coffees, lunches, uh, and meetings, one-on-ones with people who were still there at Microsoft entertaining the question of whether they should leave or not. Because mm. because that stock price really took the wind out of people's sails. And and I think that you had to be quite sort of activated in other ways uh, to remain very motivated so that so you weren't... Incentives. Yeah, so incentives. So incentive structure man. is a massive part that's right. of the Bitcoin that's right. system. Yes, yes, yes that's right. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and thanks for bringing it back to that. <laughs> and, and, so, so, and then I would say just very quickly, phase four is, are, is the Satya years. Oh, yeah. And I would say both as wearing my hat as a chairman of GeekWire and just um, being asked to do these kinds of things on occasion, regardless of GeekWire. Um, I, I have had some really po- amazing, uh, I'm grateful for the amazing interactions that I've had with Satya, where I'm on stage with him, interviewing him, mm-hmm. asking him great questions. And I can very much tell the guy oozes mm. um, uh, compassion, uh, mm. uh, listening to others, high EQ, in addition to high IQ. Not saying that Steve B didn't have those things, just that he presents differently. Right. And that when you present differently as a leader, it causes people who work for you to also present yeah. differently. Yeah. And so Satya, I think, brings out a different side of Microsoft that's causing more people to stay or even people to go back. It's at all time highs. Yeah. Microsoft stock all-time is at all-time high. highs right I know. now, you know? So, yeah. I mean, exactly. So exactly. <laughs> numbers so, speak for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Said, where, where's Microsoft at right now? Like, probably, uh, uh, I'm afraid to ask because I don't own much <laughs> of it anymore. I'd, I'd feel 135, 74. Yeah. Back, it's doing yeah, great. Back in, I mean. back in black. So, so a lot of the people who, Ari, would have been your yeah. era who got stock grants because they came out of great schools like you did. Twenty-five dollars uh, and ten cents was my stock price. Right, mm. right. Yeah. See, now now you're in the money. Well, yeah. no, I sold a while ago. Unfortunately, you would have, and you would have waited. You know, opportunity cost yeah. of what, what what else you could have done. So, so I, I sense a little bit of uh, maybe antsiness over here from the boy, just to bring you in a little bit. We want to continue on on your journey, Jonathan. But uh, so we had the pleasure of interviewing a pseudonymous uh, figure on the podcast. JJ. Uh, her name is JJ, in Detroit. She's and eleven. So. Uh, we asked her some questions about money generally, and uh, we got really interesting answers. Maybe try ans- asking a couple of questions. Yeah. I mean, we could do, always That'd do some fun. editing here. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so do you get an allowance? Yeah. Um, how much? And what do you do for it? Like, do you have to uh, have a? No, don't ask him how much. Don't ask him how much. Okay. No, it's okay. Yeah? It's okay. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Or unless you're not comfortable. I'm comfortable. No, no. With this oh, you're comfortable with it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a pretty standard. Yeah. How much do you get? So it's my age, ten dollars, but then two of the dollars go into savings and donations, and then the stuff I get to keep um, okay. is uh, eight dollars. Okay, so be eight dollars. Yeah. Do you so have the- to do anything for it, or is it because you're now uh, of age and um, about ten years old? 
just be polite, I guess. Otherwise, you know, what happens? You just don't get it. Uh, ah, so you have to be nice. So of the savings part, I think that's really commendable that you're doing saving. Um, so if I were to tell you that that $2 today could buy you a notebook, but in five years, it would only be able to buy you half of a notebook, how would that make you feel? That sounds not great. <laughs> <laughs> that also, speaks the opposite directly. That's, that we that, might want him to learn. <laughs> we uh-huh. want I thought I thought you were going in the other direction, uh-huh. which is um if 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 uh, two dollars today would buy half of a notebook, but in five years it could buy a bicycle. Oh um, I thought this was an investment it. question, but well, you're that talking is, about uh, inflation, aren't inflation, you? Inflation, exactly. Yeah, inflation one. is a massive yeah. idea that's Problem. being blown into uh, I think uh, more understanding. Yeah. Because people are questioning now. Mm-hmm. It's not just now about, you know, what is money? Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's like a really simple question, three words. Yeah. But then it brings about this whole slew of massive ideas mm-hmm. that people uh, sometimes are afraid of talking about. And, uh, yeah. Well, the, the can of worms that was opened yesterday, right, was uh, Mr. President Donald Trump. Generally, the U.S. dollar is the strongest currency in the world, which is, you know, a great place to be. However... In the world of trade relations and international politics, the president is now working with his advisors to weaken the dollar with respect to the rest of the world's currencies. And so that was the question that triggered yesterday. Go, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Why would you want to weaken the dollar compared to the world? Is that, is that a good thing know, or a bad thing? There's conversations being had now that I think are that unprecedented. Mean? I mean, yeah, that's really fascinating. I I am sorting through whether that's net net a good or a bad thing. I think I can't imagine. I can imagine that there's probably some rationale for that, mm-hmm. um, having to do with trade and who ends up wanting U.S. dollars as a as a as an asset. Sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> one. As it relates to inflation in general, though, I think it's really, you're to be commended for bringing up that topic because it's almost like this often under-focused area in when it comes to, say, anyone's conversations, long-term conversations with their financial planner, mm-hmm. right? Financial planners, um, and we have an excellent, excellent one uh, that we've, we've been working with for years, but, but, but they all kind of do this where they project out like, okay, when you're 97 years old, <laughs> you know, you're going to have uh, this amount of money uh, if you continue to invest it right and not, you know, squander it and, and, um, uh, and let it grow. And reinvest. Yeah, reinvest, yep, yep. all that stuff. But then if you ask the question, okay, how do you normalize that dollar amount to yeah. inflation? Right. It is just <laughs> wacky how, how, how much that number gets clobbered. So apparently it to, is yeah. now a nickel. So the dollar that was existed um, way back when the Federal Reserve, the, the current incarnation of the Federal Reserve. No, that was, a do, that was oh. the one we went off the gold standard. Okay. Yeah. Same year that uh, Elon Musk was born. Not a coincidence, <laughs> by the way. That's a joke. <laughs> That's a joke. Uh, um, so, so I asked that question about inflation because it, it really is, I'm really certain that it's almost like the matrix where people have been told, you know, our target inflation is 2%. Our target inflation is 2%. And it's said so much and so matter-of-factly, people take it for granted. Yes, I'm going to live to 97, and I need to account for inflation. Mm-hmm. 
And it's like, well, I'm going to earn uh, this percentage, but when you take away inflation, I might actually be uh, break even, mm-hmm. which in normal numbers, your number's higher, mm-hmm. but because of inflation, it's the same actual yeah. strength, buying power. Right. It, it speaks to, I ask, you know, how, do, how does that make you feel? Um, and it's like, from a child's perspective, I think that's the same perspective as a grown adult, a grown up, which is, well, that doesn't feel very good. And it makes you question, yeah. well, why does there have to be inflation? Like who's pulling the strings on the dolls that are saying that we have to have inflation? Yeah, why do we have to have inflation? And then when you think about buying power, like when I was growing up, gasoline used to cost, what, 50 cents a gallon? Oh, my. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then now 50 cents doesn't even buy a gallon. It mm-hmm. buys like a, a, a 18th a of a gallon, right? <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. a, ga- a gallon of gas now is, what, $3.70 mm-hmm. something cents? Mm-hmm. Just think about that. So, mm-hmm. you know, the boy sitting here, you know, you, you get $8. Eight dollars seems like a lot right now, but just wait ten years. <laughs> it's actually gonna be worth two dollars. Hey, so uh do you wanna go and it. uh be on your iPad or something? Or how do you feel? How are you feeling? You wanna still hang out? Let me ask you one other question. This is something relevant because you know, I have a three and a half year old now mm-hmm. and uh I make comments on, on LinkedIn <laughs> about how I hope that he never has to if he has a choice, I hope that he can easily make the choice of never having to buy gasoline in his adult life. Mm, good one. I want him to be able to, if he wants to have an autonomous vehicle, take him wherever he wants to go, you know, zero emissions. Mm-hmm. And so he's lucky because he's three and a half. But the boy here, he's 10-ish. So do you have aspirations on driving? I know. I mean, I'm still still kind of thinking. Still figuring it out? Yeah. Yeah, that's reasonable. Yep, yep. My kid is somehow like obsessed with cars. Obsessed. Obsessed. Underscore bold yes. italics. Yes. Yeah. He had that face. <laughs> oh, yeah. He may oh, still be in it. You used okay. to love wow. your, your buckets. You have like a whole bucket of like Hot Wheels I, I and stuff. I don't touch them. Okay. Oh, yeah. Right. So I know you don't. Phase. I know you don't. Yeah. Anymore. Yeah. Okay. I'm putting in the secret code for David. Oh. Ah, I see. Because oh, I promised him that he could have a little controls on time. our devices. Oh, I didn't <gasps> even think about that. We didn't do that. I'd take off the code. We just hide it. But oh. that's a better idea. Or we let the battery run out. <laughs> then he knows it's broken. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's see here. We were we went down Jonathan the we went down the path of uh, Microsoft and the four phases we were in. When did you know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Oh, yeah. Great like, question. Yeah. After spending so company. much time in a big company. Yeah. yeah. To be honest with you, I, I always had sort of self-defined as an entrepreneur, even going back to when I was uh, 13 or 14. And frankly, Microsoft was a detour because it felt mm. entrepreneurial. It felt like we were making up the, you know, all these new businesses and lines of revenue for the company. So, so uh, you know, when I, I had a very influential aunt and uncle who were amazing entrepreneurs down in Silicon Valley. Uh, they started a, uh, a printed circuit board um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, testing and assembly company down in um, uh, Los Altos. And they did very, very well. And I saw them literally grow from just a ragtag team of, you know, maybe 18, 20 people. I'd worked there during, work there during the summers when I was not much older than him. Uh, and they couldn't pay me. Uh, so I might get what one summer at the end of the summer I got an Apple three computer Ooh. as a Ooh. as payment, and so then I would put the Apple three into Apple two emulator mode, and then I taught myself how to use like sixty five oh two machine language and nice. basic, Whoa. and that's how I got. And then I saw Star Wars, 
and the Empire Strikes Back, and I yeah. wanted to do like you know like um, um, some sort of game uh, on on, and so that's what I did. So I actually started writing games on personal computers when I was uh, in my teens, wow. and really felt both from observing my aunt and uncle be successful entrepreneurs, and in realizing that there might be this burgeoning sort of software, particularly gaming um, segment, it was terribly interesting to me. But like a good Asian American kid, yeah. I felt the gravitational pull of tracking to like a really traditional field. So whether that's medicine or law, and really kind of put that stuff aside, despite the fact that I made good money during the summertime. Mm. You know, there was a there was a great local games company. I don't know, but most people don't know this. And there are a lot of people who are in Xbox and in the games industry now who are younger, who have no idea that this, the Pacific Northwest region has an incredibly rich yeah. history of People gaming don't know companies. that Nintendo North America is right yeah. there in Redmond. Ninten yes, I mean, yes, that's right. It's huge. Uh, uh, <laughs> and, and before that, in the, I'm talking the very beginning days of the, the, the games industry when it was Broderbund, when it was oh, Sierra. Yeah, yeah. I called uh, it Broderbund back Broderbund. then. Yeah, yeah, yeah Broderbund. Yeah. Um, um, or, or, or there was synergistic software. There was distinctive software incorporated up in Vancouver, oh. uh, BC. Count, just, I mean, I'm forgetting uh, many of them right now, but, but I worked at synergistic software. That was in Renton. Mm. And Bob and Ann Clardy were the founders, <laughs> and they were like just talking about polymaths, great game designers, great programmers, uh, great uh, business owners. Um, uh, uh, and I and they took a shot on this kid here, and, <laughs> and uh, that's really how I got started. And so I guess tracking back to your question about how I became on, an entrepreneur, I, I think I always uh, wanted to be one. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't really know how. You just kind of struggle your way through mm -hmm. it, and then. Uh, it wasn't until I graduated from college, and what happened was my I, I called home, and I said, "Hey, uh, mom and dad, are you guys coming up for graduation?" And uh, and my mom told me that they were getting divorced, and that in fact don't come home uh, after graduation because they're selling the house. And so I I oh I decided to that we ain't messing around here, and so we better get going and make something of ourselves. And so I started a games company with three other business partners uh and we had we grew very quickly to about 41 42 people in about three Whoa, years time yeah and we were a game developer and we uh you know at that point a, a a company of that size a game developer of that size of like 40-ish people could have like maybe 10 to 12 projects running at the same time you could maybe put one or two people on a single project wow. and we did games for nintendo we mm. did games for sega genesis we did game games for the NEC Turbo Graphics. Um, we did games for Electronic Arts. Eventually, that company was sold to Electronic Arts. But that was really my... I joked that that was my MBA. So uh, that was way before Microsoft. That was before yeah. Microsoft. So oh. in fact, going to Microsoft was a reaction against that kind of scrappy entrepreneurship. I decided to go to Microsoft after that concluded because I wanted to learn kind of a more legitimate, oh. I thought, a more <laughs> legitimate way of doing software. I you see. know, Microsoft, again, was the gold standard. There was no oh, Google. Yeah. There was no Facebook. Mm -hmm. There was no, there was nobody else. It was just Microsoft. 
Mm-hmm. Or you could go to some scrappy games company. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were companies like Borland that I didn't know anything about, or uh, you know, and I, wow, you're bringing up Seattle. all these names yeah. from my past. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, um, Gen X. Yeah, <laughs> right. I remember Gen X. Yeah. Do you you identify as Gen X then? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, yeah. right on, yeah. right on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 80s. Latchkey Gen kid. The yeah, whole yeah. Right. The yeah. Zenial. Zenial. Ari found an article. Yeah, that's the first yeah. time I heard that. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, let me I, I claim her as I claim her as Gen X, but then she wants to be millennial and so no. she's found i thought you do want to be millennial because no, no. you're always telling me how you've put your millennial work style onto me now because yeah, i'm yeah. blogging and I'm all that stuff i'm literally a hybrid that. of gen x and millennial. i think you are okay. too Ari. i think you do have a lot of millennial values around work-life balance and yeah. thinking about the world differently but you are not a forgive me millennials out there but you're not a <laughs> snowflake I'm not, I'm not a snowflake <laughs> you're not a snowflake no Oh, Not boy. everybody wins. Zennial yeah. is an actual uh, generation between mm. millennial and Gen X. Zennial, mm. that is me. Yeah, mm. yeah good yeah. one. I uh, yeah, on that comment, it makes me uh, think of. I think Bill Gates wrote a note one time about how the kids of his his kids of his kids generation are gonna wake up one day and realize that not everybody gets a trophy. You know, every day mm-hmm. at the yeah. end of work or end of the yeah. end of the year, yeah. it doesn't work like that. Yeah, yeah. My, my, I felt that most acutely when I went to Google mm. and I was a manager there and I was running their photos business, which included a lot of stuff. A subset of which was the company that they bought of mm-hmm. mine that um, mm. was became one piece of the overall uh, photos business, and and I can't tell you how amazing and wonderful and super smart Googlers were. Are <laughs> and I I've talked in the past of contrasting the cultures between Microsoft and Google and that that it's by itself is another podcast. I think. Oh yeah. But one of the things that was really fascinating about Googlers was the younger millennial. It was my first time managing millennials. Oh. And sometimes if you had a bad product review with like your boss with like Larry and Sergey or Eric Schmid, and you would tell your team like you know what they didn't really like the direction here. They kind of thought that maybe we messed up a little bit here but it's all good because you know a gen x guy like me is like sheesh we made it unscathed without being yelled at like like in the days like in the old days with bill bill g Uh, but the younger googlers they it's like they were number one all straight a students they'd never failed but they would be really crushed by the Mm. wait what do you mean Mm. they didn't think it was awesome Mm. they didn't think it was awesome oh god i'm gonna you know, Jonathan, I'm going to take a personal day. <laughs> I may not come back for a few days. I, I, I think I need some time off. I, I was like, okay. Holy cow. It's okay. It's <laughs> so, oh, that I'm reminds me. Bit, if anybody yeah. out there who used to <laughs> remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That reminds me a little bit. So I, I remember now Microsoft apparently uh, had a culture of like uh, meetings would turn into, turn into yelling matches. Is that true? Like back in the days? I remember some yelling. Uh-huh. Um, um, I wouldn't say that that was co- typical, oh, that, okay. that meetings okay. would turn into yelling matches. What I remember that most typically was that meetings would always start about 10 to 15 minutes late. <laughs> uh, and um, because somehow it was not a concept to budget travel time between buildings. <laughs> still, you look back and you go, that was dumb. Uh, so, but, uh, but meetings would start late. There were always, frankly, too many people in meetings. I, I mm. hope it's, I think it's different now. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bill G was always really great about 
hey, do we have to have 20 people in this meeting? Let's have the fewest number of people oh, we man. need in the meeting. Because the more people you have, uh, the energy changes, the more diluted the conversation becomes. Absolutely. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry, or Jane, uh, uh, Jill, and you know, they, they need to add value yeah. and in yeah. air quotes. And so then they have to chime in with some thing that's ultimately not tracking yeah. to what's what's most important i i do remember that there were all, meetings were always a lot of people because mm. of the particularly because of the way that the company was very matrixed in I its see. organization um frankly i hated that stuff i yeah. hated meetings where there would be particularly when i was in the consumer division or when i was in xbox and i have to answer to my p l and my what the company called a responsibility margin uh to the business but then i might have a mid-level manager from another division um and they're great people i don't mean to but but that person might weigh in well you guys need to make sure that you're going to use our api to do that or make mm. sure that you use this we're, we're standardizing on this terminology so you guys have to use that too and i'm like okay so let's so my my issue was that it, it, it diluted everything down and that we were not being realistic about recognizing that there was no one single monolithic Microsoft user. Yeah, there yeah. is the college frat boy who's going to be playing Halo. That's a different <laughs> person than the knowledge worker sitting at, say, Nordstrom's using Windows 95. A little bit of a discombobulating product experience. Yeah. Working inside. Yeah. And I was yeah. I was in the phase three to phase four. So I uh -huh, went in yeah. in 2002 mm -hmm, and... Uh, mm -hmm. Stock price was $25.10, a mm -hmm. lot of matrices and yeah. a lot mm -hmm. of hierarchy and a lot of consultants left and right. Yep. And yep. Um, it was a hard time, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, morale was really low when morale I entered. Was really, yeah. yeah. I, I, let me flip it around because I wasn't there at that point and I felt yeah. sort of bad for some of the people that were there. I mean, how did you uh, get past that morale issue or how, was it, what, how much of a challenge was it for you? for you all well so it was my first job out of college mm -hmm. um i was you know 22 coming into microsoft mm -hmm. and uh i just remember uh people were just having hush hush conversations there's a lot of you know mckinsey's running around there and bearing point running around there and a lot of executive meetings and i had actually maybe four or five managers that first year i was working at uh, microsoft and so there was no continuity and that's not chaotic at all yeah it was completely <laughs> chaotic and then uh, I probably lasted there about a year and a half. And then I said, I probably need to go somewhere else. And so I left uh, and went into the world of consulting, which actually uh, is built for chaos. You know, you have multiple projects in a year with multiple managers, but there's a whole process around it. And I thrived in that environment. Mm. And that was brought back into Microsoft as a consultant. And, and that was fun. <laughs> yeah. Because then I could <laughs> solve the problems story. and then get out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly right. I've heard this over and over again, yeah. that being a, a consultant or a contractor is great because you don't, you don't bring home the, the politics and things like that. <laughs> you know, I, I tell people all the time who have weathered through that period, who are there still mm -hmm. who were or are my contemporaries in age-wise and maybe we started at microsoft at the same time so that means that they've been there now like mm -hmm. close to 30 years Whoa. um you know if you you were there like in the early 90s or maybe you started in the mid 90s mm -hmm. you're you're 25 years mm -hmm. now right and there are a lot of them and they're great people who are doing great work i tell them 
and if they have an inkling of leaving Microsoft to do a startup, I go, dude, just you've rounded the horn. Just stay. <laughs> stay until you retire. <laughs> and, and frankly, you've figured it out. I, I, I'm very humble about the fact that, you know, the reason why I yeah. left uh, after 12 years was because I, I'm not uh, precious about disclosing this. I, I, I knew that the next step for me to to go to the next level to be like say a corporate vice president whatever uh to, to aspire to go higher in the organization that it was going to be like seven eight years worth of uh hard work um. that maybe i'm not particularly talented at that work and um uh and so you, you opt out you're very realistic about what your own skills are you you take stock of what you enjoy mm -hmm. focusing on i'm a product guy through and through i love ux ui mm. i love uh, creating brands that are a little more provocative i like creating cultures that i that where, where the values mm -hmm. uh, uh, you can kind of help shape it to be you know, and, and the reality is that any big company, Microsoft or otherwise, um, at a high enough level, you're, there are reorgs, and so you end up inheriting people. Mm -hmm. And here's what happens. They could be great people who fire on all cylinders in terms of core competencies, but, but they may culturally be different from your culture or the team that you've created. So meshing those is a non-trivial thing. Mm -hmm. And if Very. we are to believe that, mm -hmm. that somebody's assessment of whether they're happy at work uh, is is almost what is it like seventy five eighty percent about the culture and mm -hmm. who they work for right um, uh, that's those are non trivial things to take stock of and so so uh, I'm very realistic about both admiring the people who are there who have uh, wonderfully well deserved lifted their own stock price up to be where it is today um, but I'm also realistic about how I, I I wasn't meant to be one of them. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's good self awareness. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of people don't uh, have that, uh, including me. <laughs> I'm a very late bloomer, and so it's right? taking me a long time. Yeah, to tell me, tell me why you say that you're deal. a late bloomer, Dave. Well, I was uh, 45 ish when I had my first child, and so oh, to get into married. a little bit of personal we got stuff. When you were 40. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we got together at 40. I have a previous marriage that failed as well, which is a big waking up moment for any person, male or female. Uh, you learn a ton about yourself. It, it took a while before my parents finally, you know, being good Asian parents, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're incredible. They've been married for my entire lifetime. Forever. So they had me right after, you know, within a year of being married. And so it is a, I look at them as just an incredible um, model of how one way that marriage and relationships can be done. And in a world where, marriage and relationships fail seemingly so much. Mm -hmm. You know, Aaron and I look to the Gottman Institute from John oh, yeah, Gottman yeah, love here the locally. Turning love, towards. Love that. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mathematizing yeah. what a good relationship is. Seven to one minimal mm -hmm. good interactions mm -hmm. to bad. Mm -hmm. And also so, works on children. Yep. What's that? The seven to one ratio also works on children. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's right. 20 yeah. to one. Yeah. And yeah. so it took a long time, I think, for my parents, uh, bless their hearts, uh, to really realize uh, this guy isn't really like getting it. We have to tell him. My mother went on these campaigns where she would tell me, focus, focus, find a girlfriend, focus, 
get married, focus, uh-huh. you know, have kids, like focus, focus. Because yeah. I think I was just so unfocused for such a long time. And you it, were I, hanging out. I was and hanging out. Life. I was having a good time. Yeah. I mean, so it's like the incentive <laughs> maybe wasn't there for me to really lock down, you know, marriage and family and all that and stuff. I wasn't ready to get married until <laughs> you met me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Dave. Mind if I ask how? What what lessons might you have to impart to to our listeners? Uh, in terms of what what causes a marriage to fail, you know, in addition to the Gottman stuff, like what what should one yeah. always be mindful of t- so that your marriage uh, cool. does not fail? Well, I can I can only speak from my own experiences, and so I think what I try to do is take too much of a uh, left brain approach to marriage. Maybe you know too many checklists on you know good traits, bad traits. Make sure there's more good traits than bad traits. And just trying to analyze and take a very analytical point of view on, you know, okay, so this, I think this relationship will work. That was, for me, uh, an utter total failure. Uh, so then I said, okay, let's flip that around. Let's <laughs> go with my gut. You know, how about I trust uh, what I feel and then just go with that. Because Ari told me many times, uh, no, thank you. I don't no, want to go on a you. date. I will never marry no, you. I don't want to do this. Yeah. So if I had uh, taken those data points as, you know, in the, in the first go around, I would have just said, oh yeah, she's not interested. Mm-hmm. She's still not interested. She's really not interested. Okay. I should just no, go away. I yelled at him too. I left, yeah. we went to the bar <laughs> and I was like, no way in hell will we ever be together. And I like left him at the bar and I took a cab home and he was like, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but I just kind of, I just kind of went with it, <laughs> and you know, two kids later, now eight years in, seven years in, you know, we're we're uh, we're well on our way here. My advice would be to uh, to guys, maybe if you're more analytical sided, the uh, to just be more um, uh, aware of your feelings and where maybe your soul is trying to tell you to go versus where your head is mm-hmm. trying to tell you to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, my bet would be that you'll be better off in the long run. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's, yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's the great. best piece of advice I could yeah. give. Cool. Cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You've been married now for how long? For about s- uh, 17 years. Whoa. Holy 17 cow. years. Yeah, that's a teenage so. marriage. Yeah. So we no, call that. No, not at all. Uh, no, no. I <laughs> no, was, no, no. I, was I mean the, in, in the age of the marriage. Years old. Your marriage. So our, oh, I see. I yeah. see. Yeah. So yeah, we yeah. used to have, you know, it was only a few years ago where we had a, a newborn marriage. Yeah. And then we, now we're in the single digit marriages. Yeah. And yeah. so. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I don't, is it Gottman who talks about like that? No, no, no. Huh? It is not, but it sort of like talks to the maturity of the relationship because, you know, I'm a whole person myself. He's a whole person. You come together and it's a whole you new, make a new organism person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. of yeah. the we and getting yeah. to know that we person. Yeah, right, right. And it's always changing. I mean, I would argue that I was not, still am not um, a whole person or I'm, you know, I'm still discovering um, um, areas to work on and, and things to improve on. And and uh, um, so so I think it's interesting that it, it, it always evolves and changes the relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, always for the better and for the good. And mm-hmm. I think to your point, one has to give oneself permission to just be more of a feeler and, and, and intuitive about things versus right. always kind of doing a spreadsheet in your head. Not that I ever really <laughs> did that, but... but well, I think uh, you got... Uh, it yeah. seems like you made the, the decision the right way uh, with respect to your wife and your marriage. I mean... I think so, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah so right. <laughs> 17 years. Yeah. 17 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, it's, and it changes. It's different. You know, it's... it's um, I think the relationship always has to be... It has to not be a brittle one. It has to be like... It has to not be hard. has to not be... 
malleable. Um, it needs to be malleable. It has to be malleable, flexible, yeah. uh, expandable, shrinkable. Uh-huh. It has to just um, uh, be more uh, soft. Yeah. Uh, in terms of what, in terms of the fault tolerances, and because. New challenges come along the way, whether it's um, a children, as you guys are experiencing in a big way, with oh, two, yeah. two young ones. Oh, yeah. Um, myself, sort of opting out of a nine-to-five job, so to speak, that is also a pretty big change. Somebody going back to work, uh, my wife going back to work, that's a big change. Mm-hmm. These are all things that have much more fundamental impacts on how you define yourself and how you view yourself in the relationship that, than just the time that you're in the office or at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, these are really interesting things. So um, here's something yeah. that I uh, have decided that I'm doing with respect to the Gottman stuff. Oh, yeah? Is, uh, you know this, Harry. What? Uh, you and I, I think we're on the same page. I think it's really applicable the four uh, horsemen of the of divorce that John Gottman has uh, identified. Contempt. So it's contempt, criticism, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Mm-hmm. So those are the four horsemen mm-hmm. of marriage. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. And so I, I'm taking those same four horsemen, mm-hmm. and I'm saying that needs to be applied to work relationships. Mm. Because yeah, in right. this day and age, you're spending more time with your work uh, comrades mm-hmm. than you are with your family sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so if you have those four horsemen in your working relationships, it's probably doomed Mm -hmm. to end in a bad outcome. Exactly. I I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I I actually once gave a, an all hands meeting on some of the Gottman stuff. Oh, really? Because my workforce were primarily young people, a lot of single people. And it was based on that very same idea, which is that these things apply to our relationships here at work too. Yeah, because yeah. oh, if you're stonewalling yeah. a coworker yeah. who you have contempt for, right. yeah, you're not going <laughs> to get much done. Death spiral. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And you're yeah. trying to ship product or yeah. trying to debug or right. you know grow grow the grow mm-hmm. the product base. Yeah, yeah. right. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah, good stuff. On that note, I I think one of the things Day has been doing over the last couple of weeks, totally randomly, was like he'll like look at me and be like, "I love you." I love you. And he did that a few times oh, the other, nice. other yeah. day, and I was like, "What? What? Who's, who's, well, that was because what do you need me? from me? What do you? What do you? What, what, what are you angling what for? What just happened?" <laughs> and then afterwards, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> "That's great." Well, that was partly because I was so woefully inadequate in in recognizing that I should give positive, you know, more positive regard. Because I, I, I've it been, works. I've been, yeah, and, and yeah. I, I've been, you know, caught up in my own head about. Um, just the whole situation that you and I are in and trying to create something with the podcast and create something with our own entrepreneurial efforts, the anti-PRPR that, you know, you're doing, which we forgot to talk about oh, yeah. yesterday, by the way, yeah. <laughs> in the show. Yeah. <laughs> Aries identified a problem space that she was experiencing in the gift starter days. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that PR in the old world maybe meant one singular activity that is done uh, for a company. But now with so many different forms of communication and, you know, the engagement on social media, more engagement on social media, then you got, uh, I don't know, a hundred different ways to make content exactly, try to grow a company. PR, I think, we think has evolved into a different beast than what it was before. Like so, 20 years ago. Yeah. And also PR for startups is different than PR for like a more you know, established company like a Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And so um, trying out um, yeah. a different take on 
what PR. That's why I call it anti-PR PR. <laughs> Journey of a thousand steps starts yeah. with a single uh, step. Yeah. yeah, and do you have a what's do you have a uh, what's the name of your anti-PR PR firm? We're doing it under uh, Yellow Umbrella Ventures. Mm. And so uh, the logo is actually a um, a pickup truck. The idea that we're n- it's not you know some shiny uh, Lamborghini or uh, Porsche. It's you know tried and true. It's a uh, we're going on a journey together. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it's really more about how you get there than just the end results. Mm-hmm. So that's how we want to work with um, companies. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really believe in like speaking truth to power. So you know, let's let's not you know beat around the bush. You know, let's talk about the problem, make the problem the problem. You know, let's not make the people the problem on the on the on the problem, and let's just mm-hmm. talk very straight and keep it simple and mm-hmm. work shoulder to shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about you and them or me versus us or whatever. Mm-hmm. Create yeah. a heart. I call it. Uh, I'm, I come from a musical background, so creating some sort of a, a heart or a, a rhythm mm-hmm. into their communication and their yeah. collateral and um, tying it all together. What's the thinking process beso- behind your next venture? Yeah, so I apply a really a rather simple a simpleton's framework to to decide which is um if if you can be somewhat reflective as much as possible on your past journey what are the things that you've hung your hat on that have worked and what are the things that have not worked and and in my case they are creating something new and while i don't believe in first mover advantage i think that's a bit of a myth you can be second Mm. or third you just got to do it better than the other guy it's Mm -hmm. almost like that old joke about outrunning the bear you don't oh, have yeah, to be yeah. the fastest guy. You just don't have. You just can't be the last guy. Right. <laughs> um, so I think that uh, I hang my hat on um, creating something new because that it, it's new field, and sometimes that's uh, that's easier ground to grow in. Number two, I also hang my hat on a better product or user experience, and it touches on better UI UX. That's kind of more my functional wheelhouse, anyway. That's a, a woefully in need. Uh, part of the whole Bitcoin and crypto and blockchain space. It is a massive deficiency. I I mean, massive, massive deficiency. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think maybe, maybe you could lean your sights. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think the, I think the third thing that I think I'm, that I hang my hat on is really the extent to which you can marry the, to your points about the PR stuff that you're enumerating, the extent to which you can tell a really interesting, provocative story about your brand, the extent to which it be, that it's a part of you as well, the authentic you. And so things that have worked out best for me have been things where, where I'm a part of it, and it's not that abstracted or removed. Because, because I do think that people, end users, respond to brands at the end of the day, and, and, and I take a page from Don Norman, I didn't come up with this concept myself, but but we're emotional beings and we respond to brands and products in way more emotional ways than we think. Irrationality. Yeah. Irrationality, right. yeah. Right. There is an ATM, you know, Don Norman's classic argument is there is this ATM machine that's simply going to get used a lot more than this other ATM machine simply because it is more beautiful and better designed and simpler and easier. Right. So that one gets 90% of the traffic. Yeah. I think it's the same with products. And, and, and this is not only a UI UX point, but it's really about the brand itself. Is it relatable? Does it, does it, does it, does it cause you to laugh or, or have an emotional reaction? And so, uh, so that's a third thing that I use. Like, so if I hang my hat on that, when I think about this new idea, is there an opportunity for me to really win on that mm. uh, metric as well? Then I think the fourth thing is, 
kind of to your point about the the marriages and relationships, how much of it is incredibly interesting to you and causes your own emotions to to kind of be uh, uh, to to have you know for you to love this concept and have passion around it. Uh, and I think that's a very important one for me. There have been many things that could have made me a lot of money, I think, if but but I wasn't particularly passionate about it. You know, GeekWire in many ways was one, a great example of where where I was passionate about that. Not only was this new field in a sense that I, I felt like that there wasn't really a tech reporting for the Pacific Northwest, but it was also something I was incredibly passionate about. I mean, I love uh, reading about uh, tech companies and the personalities and, and you know, this, this whole idea of the, you know, um, Startup Index 200. Wow, imagine that, a place where you could go and take a look at, you know, who's moving up in the rankings, who's moving down and, and why. And it was a, a segment that I was very, very interested mm. in. Frankly, more so than some really genius understanding of the total addressable market and what share of that market we could have and 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 what the PL might look yeah. like and and I don't think I created a prospectus for what well, we didn't have to have outside investors so it, it we just did it that was a lot more uh, about uh, creating something new that could be really great and that I was passionate about and where the brand could be somewhat provocative. You uh, lean towards the consumer side then? Yes, I would say past? that I do lean okay. towards the consumer that's side. That's hard. In my experience, consumer <laughs> is really art. hard. <laughs> I do. So people, do I've heard well. people say that. I feel yeah. the same way about enterprise. I don't oh. quite get when I when I talk, you know, when I look at a, a, a Steve Singh or, you know, like look at a business like Concur, Concur I'm like, yeah. I, I would not have been smart enough to figure it out when I took create that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But consumer, you know, it's almost like uh, uh, maybe a good example. It's like Quentin Tarantino didn't actually go to film school. You know, he worked at a video store. Huh? He became an amazing director really? because he yeah. because he was such an avid consumer of films and he yeah. studied. He loved movies. He's one of my favorite directors of all yeah, time. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. we'll bookmark the whole Bruce Lee controversy from the current movie and what mm -hmm. you 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 both think about that. Um, Good, because I don't know it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, haven't, uh, I haven't been, yeah. due to the children, movies have been a total Oh, I know. I know. Dark. I feel you. Yeah. I mean, he's, <laughs> the boy here is 10 years old, and I'm still, like, I, I, don't, I can't remember the last time I was movies. in a movie theater. <laughs> yeah. like, somebody was shocked. And you go, what? You haven't seen such a movie yet? And I'm like, no, sorry. I'm a, yeah. I have a kid. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. He is a true testament to yes. uh, autodidactic self-learning to yeah. a degree that is, like, un unfathomable. That's right. If you did not witness it. Right. You would right. say, oh, that's just, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think I would argue that just like film, and I hopefully I'm not dumbing it down too much, consumer internet is the one thing that it's, you can learn a lot simply mm -hmm. by being a consumer of it. Or you could, you could deconstruct it. Mm -hmm. Fairly easy. Well, why? Maybe reverse engineer oh, it. Look at that. Kinda? Look at uh -huh. the way that they did price presentment. Mm. And in two clicks, I've bought it. And now they've got me uh, $10 a month. That was two clicks versus this guy over here. Why didn't I buy that? Oh, because that was like four, four or five clicks, yeah, yeah. right? So you can you can derive those lessons simply by mm. observing, just like Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino did with movies. And so, so uh, that is why I say that that uh, it feels oh, like enterprise is a lot harder uh -huh. uh, to me. But oh, interesting. Yeah. That's a good perspective. Mm. Good perspective. Yeah, Aaron and I, <laughs> you know. Our history and, you know, I did enterprise sales engineering for 20 years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it's very easy-ish for me to, you know, get that. Um, but just like you said, concur. I mean, um, was it 
expense reporting is yeah. not the sexiest idea yeah. in the world. Yeah. But you just grind and grind and grind yeah. and you have a sales team and they just mm-hmm. hammer the phone, cold mm-hmm. calling. Yeah. There's a process to the There's whole a process enterprise. process to how you grow that enterprise yeah. business. And then in Absolutely. 10 years, you yeah. have a $2.6 billion exit exactly. to you yeah. know, SAP. Right, yeah. right. But it's like to think that you got to wait 10 plus years yeah. and you're grinding away yeah. at travel expenses <laughs> that's <Yeah>. hard <laughs> it is hard it is hard and, and and also for for the benefit of those out there listening who are budding entrepreneurs i i really do think that you know there's one myth about being first mover and that that somehow that wins the second myth is really about the timeline i mean i do think that we have velocitized to so many really skewed not even accurate stories of 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 rags to riches and a very overnight success. Yeah. I mean, even Mark Zuckerberg took how many years was it before he went public, right. or how many years was it uh, before he even was in a position to have have a lot of outside investors? He worked on that stuff for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My own pick monkey is it's in its uh, eighth year. Geekwire is in its eighth eight plus not nine years. You know, um, and there are still people who haven't heard about us. So, right. so it it takes it just takes time yeah. to figure it out. Yeah, you and I went on a date, not date, to the Geekwire uh, inaugural bash at the Showbox we down got in the Soto. Red yeah, yeah, that's where I have oh my, my red uh, original Geekwire <gasps> T-shirt. Yeah, we have right, right, right. And do you have the one that says Geekwire? Do you want to have the ones that say Get Your Geek On? Geekwire, oh, Geekwire, Geek yeah, yeah. Geek yeah. There were, yeah. We, we did two runs of those. The Get oh. Your Geek On ones were, uh, the both were great, but that those ones are a little harder to come it's by. It's one of my most cherished uh, t-shirts. I love. I have that. a crazy t-shirt swag collection. So that was at the was that at the Showbox or was that at the uh, Union Square Station? Oh. No Showbox. I remember Sir Mix a Lot came. Oh, yeah, Shrimp oh, came. Uh-huh. Really yeah, Detlef Shrimp. I do remember yeah. him. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, are shooting hoops a little bit. That was. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the sports and Geekwire, uh, hi to Taylor out there if you're listening. Love hey, your Taylor work. Soper. Congratulations. Taylor has again. a lot of fans. Congratulations so. on your work. Yeah. 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 And he's been recently, he's been promoted to yep. assistant uh, uh, editor in chief, and um, uh, he, he's doing a great job. Yeah. Yes. So, to your point, there, we have some friends. Uh, they run an outfit called Crypto Slate, mm. and it was actually a similar kind of vein of, well, I'm already doing tons of research on Bitcoin and crypto and blockchain. I'm already loving this space so much. Uh, I'm tech-focused. I should just create my own uh, outlet, media outlet, mm-hmm. called CryptoSlate, mm-hmm. and then just uh, you know productize mm-hmm. uh, what I was do- already doing anyway. Mm-hmm. And so they're yeah, they're off to the races and you know doing their own thing. I think they have a informal like co-publishing. Uh, agreement with Geekwire. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I've heard of this. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I think he's doing fairly well with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah he's getting good. pretty good notoriety from big voices in the space in the crypto yeah. blockchain, good, crypto good. space. That's yeah. great. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. start Wrap wrapping up. it up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay. All right. I mean, there's so many. So we, yeah, we so can go on for questions. hours and hours <laughs> and hours. <laughs> you guys are really delightful to talk to. So you I'm know, there's some to... podcasts uh, that I listen to where they they will openly drink during the podcast. Uh, hey, how come we didn't do that? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they will bring out the soju. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Have yeah. you ever had that, by the I, way? Soju? I don't think I've ever had <gasps> soju. Is yeah. it? Is it a what's it's the her, base? So it's a sweet potato, you know, sweet like vodka from potato oh. traditionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Korean soju is from sweet potato. 
So it's oh, uh, nice. really easy to go down, and then it mixes really well with like different flavors. And mm-hmm. so if you go to like a Korean bar, they'll have like strawberry soju, yogurt soju, <laughs> grape soju, really? lemon soju. It's delicious. And then you always want to eat it with uh, something salty mm. or so, spicy and yeah, or spicy. Fried chicken. Wow. Korean fried chicken is a thing. And so you like cry, Korean fried different chicken, KFC. soju. A different KFC, yeah. I'm Korean learning so much. We can do this sometime. We'll go <laughs> up to like Mukilteo. There's a really good one up there. You village too. Oh yeah, you Korean fried chicken up there. Oh yeah, there yeah. is. Really? Oh, yeah. You village? Okay, let's yeah. do it. Yeah. Right. You village. Yeah. No, it, it's and so I'll look for. Can I get like? Can you get soju anywhere? Like, yeah. can you get it at like restaurant foods or something? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So right. You yeah. can get like Jinro yeah, or Tamarsur. Okay, those uh, are brands. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll maybe right. I'll bring you a bottle. Next I'll look for yeah. it. No, no, no. I'll, I'll go. I'll go find some and try it. You know, and uh, uh, yeah, it, I'm sure it, I'll it, like it. Watch a Korean drama. Have a bottle. Yeah. I do. <laughs> like you drink it, and then by the end you're like sobbing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. everyone's dead. Yeah. <laughs> That's a hallmark of Korean uh, dramas. A lot of people die. Is that right? That makes you, yeah, it gets the audience crying, yeah. Yeah, I started <laughs> one that was kind of like a romance. Yeah, I'm I'm into the Asian. So uh, the K-pop and the yeah. Korean dramas yeah. world, I guess. Uh, Everyone um, loves the Korean man because invading. of the Korean dramas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. Because for growing up, there were no Asian American, Asian role models, except for Bruce Lee. And then mm-hmm. obviously his life was tragically cut short. And then... Then we weathered through a long period, my friends, of long duck dong and all oh, that. Right, right, right. You know, all that stuff, you know. And and I'm finally I'm so pleased to see that finally things are kind of uh, coming up again and if you and, wouldn't mind uh, yeah. uh, remaking your point earlier about yeah. how because we talked about crazy rich Asians mm-hmm. and you made a really interesting point that I had yeah. not thought about yeah yeah so I actually got sad and actually got a little teary-eyed during crazy rich Asians um, in the middle of it uh, because I felt really bad for I mean I, I was happy that this was happening and and there's some personal connections to the movie in terms of like just friends of friends you know we're all two degrees removed you know so so knowing some people who are a part of it, I was so happy for them. But at the same time, I was really, really sad for all of the people who came before uh, all of the cast members and the director and the people involved, um, the writers. There are so many talented Asian Americans who are struggling actors and writers and directors who never really got the shot because they were just too early right? or, the or this came too late, I, mm-hmm. I should say. And I felt bad for them. Uh, I felt that, and they're, they're too old to play uh, Nick. Do a rom-com. Or, or, exactly. yeah, do a they rom-com. have to be the parents they're, or the grandparents. Yeah, now. exactly. Yeah. And it's, yeah. and it's, and that makes me sad. You know, that made me a little sad that, that it didn't yeah. have to be that way. And um, yeah. so it's a historic so. uh, moment. Uh, kind of like Black Panther was yeah. nearly all African-American yeah. cast and it was an awesome movie. unprecedented success with that yeah. and then yeah, yeah crazy rich right. asians right and yeah. uh you know we talked about this earlier but they turned down a massive massive paycheck mm-hmm. from netflix mm-hmm. to do a theatrical release mm-hmm. which came with its all its own you know problems and issues yeah. right but uh I think it's the right yeah. decision though now, now, definitely is yeah, the right yeah. decision. Right, yeah. right, yeah. This this yeah. aspect of of it's more of an event if people yeah. go to a movie theater and it's more sort of legit. I think that that's mm-hmm. probably more of a heart decision than it was a brain one. Yeah. you know, yeah. uh, the Netflix one in terms of the smart money would have perhaps have gone. They netted out better now, so so it was both heart and brain that that uh, in, in, oh, in being better. Yeah. But All but right. but I think that uh, most people, uh, if you factored in the risk of 
you know, a theatrical mm-hmm. release in a crowded, f- very fragmented segment versus the the sure you know the sure For thing sure. of Netflix money. You would have taken Netflix. Absolutely. Money. What was the other Asian American movie that you forced uh, you you got Netflix for that we watched that we thoroughly enjoyed? Uh, always be my maybe. Oh, always be my maybe. <laughs> yes, I did see that. I, w- I I love Ali Wong and um oh the, the Randall the, the, Park. Randall Park. Yeah. I just think they're so smart and funny and talented. I I didn't. I'm sorry, Ali and Randall. Um, <laughs> I thought it were kind of underdelivered. I thought they were. I thought. I thought it could have been better. I wanted it to be better. You know no, what I broke be it? You, so you know what broke yeah, what it for broke me? It for you? So so I was what? watching it the whole time. I was yeah. kind of like eh eh eh. Then Keanu showed up. And oh, I was like, yeah. oh, oh Keanu, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. So I, that's what blew it open for me. Yeah. Me uh, being a big Keanu fan. Me too. And then the rest of it just kind of like me. you know did yeah. well. Oh right. no, the rest of it was like awesome after he showed up. Yeah. But like during it, I, I was, I guess I've studied film too much, and I yeah. kind of know the setups and you know yeah. how it works and everything. And so that's why I was kind of like, okay, that's predictable. That's predictable. Sure, sure. And then when he showed up, I just, I was just blown away. Yeah, me too. I thought that was so cool. And I, I thought I'd read somewhere that he, part of the reason why he said yes was it, he himself, in acknowledging his own Asian American heritage. You know, forgive me, but as a, a sort of a some days a frustrated Asian American, it actually frustrates me that most people don't realize that there are plenty of these mainstream, big, brand-name Hollywood A-list actors, mm-hmm. they're half Asian, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so society mm-hmm. will always kind of define you by your looks. And, and you know, I, I've actually had a friend, I have a friend that I went to college with who uh, is half Asian, half African-American. Huh. Uh, but she says, you know, society will always define you by your darkest shade. So to yep. everybody, yep. I'm never acknowledged as Asian. I'm always acknowledged as black. Right. And then maybe Keanu, people like Keanu have the opposite, which is that he he presents more white. And so therefore people don't realize that right, he's right. half Asian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I thought everyone knew he was half Asian. <laughs> only Xennials. Xennials. How do you say that? Xennials. Xennials. <laughs> yeah, maybe only Xennials, but Gen X were clueless. We think it's you- probably, ever since the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, yeah. it's probably been slowly skewing to the awareness of, oh, you know, oh, he's Did part you know? this, part yeah. that, you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. But yeah, definitely at Bill and Ted, it was zero awareness. Yeah. I used yeah. to I used to always point that out. Like, you know, when Dean Cain was the lead, was Superman, oh, yeah. I was like, Dean Cain, yeah. yeah. brother's half Japanese, man. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm forgetting them, but there was like a whole list of them that, oh, that yeah, yeah, mainstream yeah. A-list actors that were... Yeah. Uh, to just wrap it up, it's really interesting how mainstream media, arts especially, is coming around to the awareness that, oh, you can actually make money having <laughs> non-white leads yeah, right. in movies. Hey, who'd have thought that? <laughs> what, what, okay, let, let me ask you, because you, you are way more evolved and aware on this front than I am. What movies do you highly recommend for folks to watch that maybe uh, are, are both excellent movies in their own right? Also, sort of check off that, hey, hey, let's let's acknowledge and be aware of, of Asian American cultures. and hmm. Asian American Yeah, culture. Asian American, just oh, to, just American. to kind of make, put some specificity on the question. Okay, so this is a obscure reference, uh, but I have a friend, Jayco, a longtime friend of mine, actually a local Seattle guy. He went to film school in, I believe, in Vancouver, BC. He was one of the ones who didn't get caught in the trap of be a lawyer, be a doctor, be an engineer. He went to film school. And so he did a short film called uh, My Brown Eyes, Mm -hmm. award-winning short film about basically growing up Asian-American, Korean-American in America. 
Cool. Highly recommend. It's probably on YouTube now, uh-huh. but I highly, highly My recommend. My Brown Eyes. My Brown Eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's okay. an amazing short film. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to do a, a feature film. Oh, oh, man, this is terrible at me. Right? I should remember the name of the. I'll, I'll find that later eyes. on. Yeah, mm-hmm. My Brown Eyes is pretty well known here in the uh, Korean yeah. community. Is that right? He's also See, Korean American. Not aware. Yeah, and so uh, he did that feature film. And the feature film also uh, called out a lot of identity issues. Uh, one of the leads is uh, adopted, plays an adopted mm-hmm. Korean kid mm-hmm. in real life, also mm-hmm. an adopted mm-hmm. Korean kid mm-hmm. from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And it speaks to the whole idea of growing up American and American now, that definition, I think people are really becoming, coming to grips with what is really American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is a U.S. citizen? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I grew up at, in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I had the thickest draw, North Carolina <laughs> draw ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out to Cryptolina out there. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, yeah, I was the only Korean American kid in my junior high and high school. You know, I was friends or acquaintance with the only Vietnamese kid, the only mm-hmm. Indian American mm-hmm. kid. Mm-hmm. And it, it really makes you wonder who you are, your whole identity and, yeah. and everything. I, yeah. I discovered you, it through books. I didn't watch books. Uh, I, I was uh-huh. absent through pop culture until like the early 2000s. Is that right? As Day knows, yeah. So classical music and mm-hmm. books. And so mm-hmm. it was Amy Tan, all of her mm-hmm. books Amy that Tan, opened uh-huh. me up to this idea yeah. of that I wasn't the only Asian around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Chang Rae Lee, he's a Korean author also. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I read about his books. Oh, yeah. He had a really good yeah. first book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Chang yeah. Rae Lee, a native. Mm-hmm. So native that, speaker. Yeah. So that mm-hmm. also opened up uh, the idea of being Asian American. Mm-hmm. And then I actually uh, studied Asian studies in college. Oh, you did? At Cornell? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. But it was actually the intersection of how uh, the Americas, Americans see Asians, how Europeans mm-hmm. see Asians, and how Asians see everybody else. Mm-hmm. So that was Asian studies at Cornell. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really eye-opening to me. And then you get to um, focus on cer- certain cultures. So mine was Vietnam, Japan, mm-hmm. and Korea. Mm-hmm. And so, like, some of those films there, you could see, uh, like, I can go on and on and on. How, how do Asians see everyone else? I don't know. I think Asians like to see themselves as hardworking. So the rice ethic is really, really big. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, to, like, grow mm-hmm. rice in the yeah, fields, you right. have to be, like, first out and yeah. first, last mm-hmm. one down. Mm-hmm. And yep. you have to be very methodical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we have this rice ethic, which is why we're also seen as the uh, model citizen mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. And then also history of hardship. And it really depends, like... If you know, the history of hardship is different than if you're Chinese versus you're Japanese versus Korean. Korean or Vietnamese. Uh, right, right. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, um, but we all have our um, history of hardship that's mm-hmm. repeated through the generations. And I don't know if you really get that if you're growing up in America, you know, like growing up where I grew up in upstate New York, most of my counterparts don't have that history of hardship, unless they were like Jewish. I'm Jewish, mm-hmm. they're very good at like telling the history of hardship. Mm-hmm. So I think Asians usually have that family history of hardship mm-hmm. and then the rice ethic and then you must become, you know, doctor, lawyer, finance person mm-hmm. or <laughs> mm-hmm. right the four jobs that are allowed. I'm going to have to do some introspection and thinking uh, on the movies that I've seen about your question about, you know, what movies inform Asian Americanness, mm-hmm. you know, in more, the more maybe the more popular movies. I, like I got to have Chan something movies. in the back of my head. Jackie Chan. Yeah. Um, Rush Hour in Hong Kong gives you like mm-hmm. the uh, Hong Kong 
perspective that yeah. I saw. Yeah. Since we talked about Ali Wong earlier yeah. also, uh, there's fancy Asians and jungle Asians. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no. That's how they view I know, themselves. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> My husband is fancy Asian and I'm jungle Asian. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. We saw her downtown when she, when she yeah, came I and know. did her she show. Came. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That was funny. super fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so Thank you guys. So much, Jonathan. This has been a ton thank of fun. Thank you so much. A ton of fun. Yeah. Ari? Right back at you. <laughs> let's Thank do it you. again. Yeah, let's do it again. <laughs> all right. Cool. Over, uh, over uh, soju and uh, spicy snacks and all that all right. stuff too. Not spicy. Yeah. Not spicy or salty snacks. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's we'll great. Get, so it's 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 been said that it's uh, when you do a podcasting with uh, you know beverages, adult beverages, it, it lends to a, a truth serum aspect. We were speaking truth anyway, but we'll just be brutally more candid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or more right, emotive. Right, that's right. More emotive. You know, <laughs> yeah. Koreans are known as the uh, Italians of Europe. Koreans are to Asia. Is that true? Yes, yeah, so we're the more emotive emotional culture yeah. okay yeah. did, I did you, not know that. uh there's a movie that i recommended on uh bitcoin twitter crowd but it's called uh old boy hollywood remade it mm. uh the original korean one old boy mm-hmm. it is just off the charts will blow your mind mm-hmm. into directions kind of like pulp fiction did for me when i really? first watched that really it, oh, it's, like, it's like oh my goodness and mm-hmm. it's all it's 100 percent korean uh-huh and so the fact that it's it is that you know brings me a bit of pride mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but yeah the korean film is actually pretty amazing yeah. there's, there's a lot of i think repressed artists uh-huh. <laughs> you know we're all gunning for lawyers and doctors and engineers but i think mm-hmm. there's a really solid population of repressed artists in yeah. korea yeah yeah, and Korean Americans. Very motive. Yeah. Well, good. Yeah. I'm gonna immediately check that out. So, old boy. Awesome. Cool. Thank you again. Thank you. Good Thank job, you guys. You. Yeah. Thank you, Jonathan. All right. Be nice to each other out there, y'all. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Appreciate ratings, comments, and reviews. Together we rise. Bye. Hello. This is Mark Jung Chun from Federal Way via Manila, Philippines. None of the statements or opinions expressed in this podcast by the guests or its hosts is to be taken as financial or legal or psychological or dietary advice or a solicitation of any kind to participate in a conservative or risky or speculative financial instrument that may or may not require accredited investor status as defined by either the Security and Exchange Commission or the Commodity Futures Trading Commission of the United States of America or independent thought and rational thinking from the laws of humanity. By listening, you acknowledge that the hosts, Ari and Day, and their guests are not financial advisors or legal scholars or psychologists or dietitians of any kind, but only humans and not sentient intergalactic alien life forms. There shall be no reliance by the listeners to the representations made in this podcast as being factual, fiduciary, or any other big vocabulary word you can think of. All statements made in this podcast by any living or dead or unborn or zombie or robotic entity in the past, present, or future of the space-time continuum of the known universe are purely ironic and coincidental thoughts and opinions. Moments of sarcasm, sadness, education, glee, entertainment, or any other emotion found in this podcast are fully your responsibility and reaction that may or may not be intended for the listener in any way, shape, or form. This podcast contains adult information. Discretion is strongly advised. Thank you for listening. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. You probably have a really good pitch from playing piano. <laughs> I was in choir like... Oh, you were? All my life, yeah. Oh, really? But my pitch is a little off. I don't know if that's a getting older thing. Tenor? 
I was. You were a tender? Yeah, yeah. Hold on. Check one, two, three. A, B, C. All right. Beautiful. Actually, that's a good guess on your part because most people, based on my speaking voice, would not guess tenor. But I was a tenor. <coughs> mm-hmm. Isn't that weird? So no, sounds, but my speaking voice right. is a little deeper. My All right, uh, so you're going to be the boy. We got Ari. We got Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Uh, today is uh, August 27th. I usually have uh, notes here. We do the price of Bitcoin. I have my Blockfolio app. It is ten. Oh, it went ten thousand one hundred fifty-four dollars right now. All right, give me a second, Harry. Yes, sir. Uh, Excuse me. 